Hey, Romans chapter eight. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get that out and open it to Romans chapter eight. That's where we're gonna be this morning. I'm excited this morning um, because we're gonna be jumping into a new sermon series that's gonna take us up until Advent, which isn't that far away, which is crazy. Um, That's gonna take us up until Advent, studying verse by verse through Romans chapter eight. Um, As you may know, uh, we, just a couple of weeks ago, we started asking all of you as the church to begin reading the book of Romans. And we said, hey, we want, as a whole church, we just want to be reading the Bible together. So our pastors have been putting out some helps with that, some uh, discussion guides, some videos, as we started to read through Romans together. If you go to our website, You'll see right at the, like, there's a few buttons that pop up right in front of your face, and one of them says, this week's Bible reading, colon, and then it gives you this week's reading. And so we're, I think, in Romans 2 and three, two or 3 now. So we encourage you to be doing that, but as we're reading through the book of Romans together as a church, we wanted to do an in-depth, really drill down into Romans chapter 8 uh, for our Sunday morning sermons. You know, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ can completely transform your life. Uh, and, and I don't just mean transform what you think or transform your beliefs. I believe that, of course. But, but what I mean is I believe it can transform your heart. Like the joy of your heart, the peace of your heart, the things that your heart actually loves. Right, if you ever think about it, if you've ever fallen in love with someone romantically, all right, if, you, if you're married, maybe you think back to when you first met your spouse and you began to fall in love and, and you think to those moments where your heart was just so infatuated. You just loved being with that person. Your affection for them was strong. All you could think about was knowing more about that person and being with them. And, and I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ can produce that kind of affection in your heart for God and his word. And, and I believe, and, and I'm gonna put my, myself first in this line, I believe that all of us, need our hearts stirred when it comes to our affections for God, especially after the last couple of years that that we've endured uh, together. And I think we need to be reminded of why are we here? Why, Why are we gathering? Why are we singing together on Sunday mornings? Why are we studying this word together? Why am I investing time and my money and my gifts and skills to this thing called the church and worshiping God. Why am I doing that? And believe me, all of that becomes easier when our hearts have their affections pointed towards God. And I cannot think of a better chapter of scripture just to really dig into, to slowly walk through word by word to stir our affections for Jesus than Romans chapter Eight. I cannot think of a more comprehensive chapter in the Bible that explains to us what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So that's what we're going to do over the next, I don't know, seven or eight weeks. We're going to dig into Romans chapter 8, verse 
by verse. And so we're going to get started right now. So if you have a Bible, Romans 8, um, get it open, put it on your lap, keep it open to Romans 8 for the remainder of the sermon. Uh, if, you have, uh, if you don't have a Bible and you want to use your phone app, that's completely fine. I like paper Bibles because if you're like me and you got your phone app out, the minute I get bored, I'm off to another app, right? So paper Bibles, you don't have that option. I guess you go read other scriptures if you got bored. So, but Romans 8, keep your Bible open because we're going to be in there and bouncing around and going to a few other, other scriptures and then headed back to Romans 8. And I just want you to see the things that Paul is trying to write to us and explain to us in this chapter. So let's get started. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're going to stop. Right, two, two words. I just want to draw your attention to there if you keep it on the screen. It, it says there is therefore, therefore, now no condemnation. And so what that word's telling us is that this statement, which is a huge statement, hinges on everything that Paul has just taught us from Romans 1 to 7. So context is going to be really important, and we'll, we'll go do some of that in, in just a minute. And then it says, there is therefore now no condemnation. I want you to see that word now, because what Paul is, I guess, saying there is, there's been now a pivot when it comes to your relationship with God. Before, you were under condemnation, but now you're not under condemnation. And, and so he's going to explain in these verses, verses 1 to 4, how that pivot takes place. We are now no longer under any condemnation. I believe that this verse right here, chapter uh, verse one, this is a life-transforming verse. This, this verse, this truth that we're looking at right now, it is a life-transforming statement that we are no longer under condemnation, and it's life-transforming if you actually believe that you deserve condemnation. If you actually believe that I deserve God's condemnation, his wrath, his judgment, then this statement, verse one, is a life-transforming statement. Now, all of us are in different places when it comes to our, our self-awareness and, and kind of our awareness of the pervasiveness of our sin and, and what sin actually is and, and why we do deserve God's Judgment. Uh, one of the things I think I've noticed in the church, not just Grace Hill, but the church in general, is, is I think we struggle with a kind of fundamental misunderstanding of what sin actually is, what the biblical definition of sin is. Like we, we, we live in a law based society. So in our society, if you keep the law, if you do the right things, then you're good. And if you don't, you, you're not good. We see righteousness, this idea of being righteous as an external reality, 
right? That, that, okay, I've done the things that I need to do or I refrained from doing the things I shouldn't do. Therefore, externally, I'm righteous. But as we dig into what the definition of sin is in the Bible, I think what we're gonna see is that's not God's definition of sin. God doesn't look on the outside. He actually looks at the inside. And this is something I think that we struggle with in the church, to see sin and to define righteousness according to the way the Bible does. And so I need to explain this. So for us to understand why Romans 8.1 is such a massive statement, we got to understand the biblical definition of sin. And, and Paul tries to unpack this for us in those first seven chapters of Romans. But before we even hit Romans, the previous chapters, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to creation. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Because when we read about the creation of the world... God says two things about you and me when he created us. The first thing he says is that we've been created, man and woman, we've been created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. So what that means is that you have been created and you've been given the purpose to reflect the glory of God with everything that you do that your life would be oriented around God, that everything you do is in worship to God, all right? And, and the second thing he does then, he says, is he goes, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go subdue the earth. And what we believe, what that means is, is that God has said, okay, mankind, you now, I'm gonna delegate leadership to you over the earth, and I want you to go and create and innovate and build and thrive and flourish and build families and cities and all of this stuff. I want you to thrive as a society as image bearers of God. So everything you do to subdue the earth would be in worship to God to reflect the glory of God because your life is centered and oriented around God. That's creation. And God called it good. He says this is good. Because everything was in harmony with one another. Everything was centered on God, oriented around God. One of my favorite passages that describes this reality is Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It says this, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Let me go all the way back there. This is the end of the creation narrative, and the scripture says, and the man and his wife, it's Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, were both naked and were not ashamed. Now you have to understand that Hebrew word naked doesn't just mean unclothed. It means vulnerable. Uh, it's used again in Genesis 42 uh, in the book of Genesis where uh, Joseph is prime minister of Egypt and his brothers are approaching him to get food and his brothers don't know that it's their brother Joseph whom they sold into slavery years back. But Joseph knows it's their brothers, his, his brothers, and he accuses them. He goes, you have come to spy out the nakedness of the land. Same word. Basically saying, hey, you, you've come to figure out what our vulnerabilities are and where you can attack us. So Genesis 2.25 is saying, 
We are vulnerable people, but we're not ashamed. We're not afraid because creation is good. Everything is in harmony. Everything is oriented around God. So you could think of it this way. Eve, being completely naked and vulnerable, looks at Adam, her husband, and he see, or sorry, she sees nothing in Adam that could exploit her, take advantage of her, that she needs to be afraid of. Why? Because Adam's world is oriented on God. The motivations of his heart is to bear the image of God. Same thing with Adam when it came to Eve. But we know the story. We know as we get to Genesis chapter 3, things change. Mankind sins for the first time. And now listen, that first sin, it wasn't just the reaching for the tree. Something happened internally before the reach even occurred for the tree. So with that context, read this with me. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And that serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Refutes God's word. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Meaning, You no longer will have to bear the image of God. You can now bear the image of yourself because you'll be equal with God. You don't need to orient your life around God and what he wants. You can orient your life around yourself and what you want. Go back to the text. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was desired to make one wise, this tree would set me free from the bondage of being an image bearer of God. I can be an image bearer of myself. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, aloof, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They covered themselves. All of a sudden, Eve looks at her husband, Adam, and she sees a man that can exploit her, abuse her, sin against her, because she sees a man whose life is now oriented around himself, not God. Same thing with Adam to Eve. They they cover themselves. I'm afraid now. They were now a threat. And so what Paul is going to do in the book of Romans in chapter 1 is he's going to help us make sense of this. See, Romans chapter 1, I want you to see verses 24 and 25. 
Look at what Paul says, knowing this context from Genesis 3 of what just occurred. Look what Paul says. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So, so first of all, what that means is God said, you want to bear your own image? You want to orient your life around yourself? Have at it. See what happens. See what comes of the world. God gave them up to their lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, look at this. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, the lie of the serpent, and worshiped and served the creature themselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You want a succinct biblical definition of sin, Romans 1.25, there it is. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. A biblical definition of sin is bearing the image of self, orienting your life around yourself instead of bearing the image of God in which we were created to do. So sin isn't just our external behavior, the things that we do or the things that we refrain from doing, that's a symptom of what's going on inside of us. But the sin is actually the orientation of our hearts on ourselves. This is exactly why Jesus got in so much trouble when he came and started teaching and preaching. Because he came into a rigidly Jewish context. He was among the Pharisees and they very much saw righteousness as an external reality. We have a rigid law to keep. I've got the sacrifices. I've got the feasts. I've got the commandments. I'm going to do the things that I need to do. And if I do them, then I am righteous. And so Jesus gets up on the mount, delivers a sermon, and he starts to say things like, well, yeah, the law says do not commit adultery, but I say if you even lust after that person in your heart, then you already have done it. See, because God looks on the inside. See, the law says do not murder, but I say if you even hate that person in your heart, then you've already committed the murder. Because God looks on the inside, right? When we have a completely self-orientation, right, we begin to say, see things like, well, my desire to have that person for myself because I am entitled to it. Well, there's your sin, right? Or that entitlement to judgment and I want bad things for that person to occur because what they have done to me. Again, a self-orientation. Keep teasing them out. Uh, the, command, uh, the Ten Commandments says don't steal. Don't covet. Well, it's the entitlement of I should be able to have what that person has. It's that self-orientation. There's your sin. And so we can begin to tease that out all over the commandments through Scripture of not just our external reality, but of what's going on inside of us. It's not just that we didn't care for the poor. It's that you didn't even have compassion on the poor and see that they needed care. Because God is always looking at the heart. 
And so what Jesus does is he blows the doors open when it comes to what sin actually is to the point that there is not one of us, not one person who can claim that we do not have a sinful nature, a nature about us that is oriented around self. There is not one of us who can claim that we are innocent of seeking to steal the glory of God by orienting our lives around ourselves instead of our creator. Not one of us. Right? I mean, this is why Paul, if you keep go to Romans 3, Paul says things like in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 23, for all have sinned, right? You parse out that Greek for all. It means all, everyone has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And so here's the radical statement the Bible is making. It doesn't matter if your mother Teresa in Calcutta serving the poor or the ax murderer on death row, all have fallen short All have oriented their lives around themselves. All are under condemnation from God. Because it's not just about how we have lived our lives externally. It's about what motivates us and what the condition of our heart actually is. The scandal of Jesus is that the buttoned up religious person that when you look upon them, they, it seems like they do everything right, is in just as need, in need of a savior as the person who looks like everything is falling apart and they do everything wrong. It's one of the reasons why Jesus got crucified. It's because that was scandalous. And if you keep reading in Romans, you're going to get to Romans chapter 7. And what you're going to read in Romans chapter 7 is Paul wrestling with this in his own heart. Paul wrestling with the reality of, he he says, why do I keep doing the things that I do not want to do, and yet why do I not do the things that I want to do? You ever ask yourself that question? Paul's wrestling with his own heart. He's looking at his own heart and he's going, man, I can see how my own heart, the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is oriented around self. There's sin that's pervasive all in my heart. Who can save me? That's what Paul's asking in Romans 7. What do I do with this? How do I change Does this mean we're all doomed because we're looking at the heart, not just the external realities? And it's like in Isaiah when God says, hey, even your good works are filthy rags to me because of where your heart is. What do we do? And that that leads us to the doorstep of Romans 8. That leads us to where Paul says now in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
If you are in Christ Jesus, you are no longer condemned for the condition of your heart. And if that's not good news to you, then I, I think you may not be in touch with the condition of your heart. John Calvin famously said in the opening of his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, you can't know God unless you know yourself. And what he means by that is, unless you understand the pervasiveness of your own sin, then you will not know the grace and the character and the mercy and the holiness of God. You won't be able to see it. It actually might be what's holding you back in your faith right now. Is that this statement, Romans 8.1, isn't good news because you're not sure what you deserve condemnation for. And so Paul says gloriously, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so verses two to four, he's now gonna unpack what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus and why does that mean no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. So look at verse two with me, Romans eight, verse two into three a little bit. It says this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase again, in Christ, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So, So in other words, God's spirit has set you free from this death grip, this reality that you have a heart that's oriented around yourself and you're now under condemnation and judgment for that. You've been set free from that reality and you now are under no condemnation because of what Christ has done. God did something that the law could not accomplish. Did you see that? It says God did, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, meaning weakened by our hearts that are oriented around self, could not do. The law, meaning the Mosaic law, could not change our hearts. I can give you a list of things to do. I can give you a list of commands. I can say, don't do this, do this. Give you a checklist. Many of us love checklists. It will not change your heart. The law cannot reorient your heart from being centered on self to being centered on God again. The law cannot do that, so God did it. And we just gotta stop there. Like, like let's not fly by what verse three actually has to say to us. God had to do something. Like, Christianity is not about mustering up all the willpower that you can to to change your heart. It's not about mustering up all the willpower that you can to make sure you never sin. That's not not what it's about because you can't do that, right? How many of you have looked at your heart and and the desires of your heart and the struggles of your heart and the feelings and maybe the feelings of hatred towards other people or bitterness or hurt? How many of you looked at it and said, stop, stop being anxious? Stop feeling that way. Stop sinning. It doesn't work. And so we 
is such an amazing verse here in verse three because it basically tells us that only God can do this work. Only God can change the affections of your heart. Only God can reorient your heart back around himself. And the only basis that he does that, simply because all of us have fallen short, the only basis that he can do that is on grace. That's it. It's on grace. We can't compel God to do that for us. What do we have to offer him that would compel him? It is simply by his grace and his mercy that he does this work inside of us. Romans 8.1 is a life-transforming verse because God is doing something that we know we cannot do. God is offering to do something in my heart that I know I can't accomplish on my own. And I, and I just wanted to say this too with Romans 8.3 is that what it also means is that there's not one person who's unwelcome in the church. Because there's not one person who is too far gone for God to do this work. For us to ever think that someone has sinned too much. For us to ever think that someone is too far gone for God to completely turn around their life. Number one, we are sinning against the holiness of God and the power of God to be able to change people. And number two, we are minimizing our own sin because the fact that there is now no more condemnation means that all of us were too far gone at one point. All of us were too far gone before we could do anything. And yet God stepped in. And God did the work that the law could not do. And so the church of Jesus Christ, as we wait for Jesus to return, our mission is to go and proclaim that message to everyone, not casting judgment on anyone based off the external appearance. Because God doesn't look at the outside. So how? how? What did God do? Okay, that's the question. God did something to change our hearts. What did he do? Let's do verse three again. The whole verse, it says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning as a human being. Jesus came as a human being and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In Romans 8, 1, it says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, in Christ. We saw that also in verse two, this idea of being in Christ. What does that mean? So verse three is gonna give us a piece of it and verse four is gonna give us the other piece of it. So here's verse three. Verse three says that God sent Jesus as a human being to condemn sin in the flesh. So what it means that Jesus came and condemned sin in the flesh is that when he went to the cross, he took upon himself our sin. 
And as he went to the cross, he bore upon himself God's wrath and his judgment against our sin. Jesus took it upon himself. And then we go to verse 4, and it says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that's the second part of being in Christ Jesus. Jesus takes our sin on the cross, then he gives us his righteousness. Being in Christ basically means we've switched places. Jesus lived a life that was righteous internally and externally. And he gives that to us while he takes on the life that we lived with our life oriented around ourselves. And he takes that to the cross and it endures the wrath of God. We are in Christ because we are literally living in the righteousness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes this so clear. It says, I'm gonna read it on the screen behind me. It says this, that for our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, to be our sin, who knew no sin, because Jesus was without sin, so that in him, there's our phrase again, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that God did that the law could not do, is he washes us clean of our sin, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus, and he puts his spirit inside of us to begin that process of transforming us, reorienting our heart from being centered on self to being centered on God. And that's what we're gonna talk about next week as we hit verse five in later verses. What does it mean to live by the Spirit, this reality that God is now beginning this slow, progressive work in us, reorienting our hearts. But this morning, what we see in the text is that if you're in Christ, if you have faith in this reality that Jesus has taken your sin and given you his righteousness, you now stand before God no longer condemned, no longer as someone who basically has a heart that is now oriented on self, but you have now been forgiven, washed clean, you're his child, and now God is working on your heart to reorient it. There's no condemnation for you. This is what it means to be in Christ. And my question for you this morning is this. Are you in Christ? And don't let that question just fly by too quickly. You know, don't, don't, don't just do the, well, of course. I think so many times we've reduced our faith down to my external realities the things I do and don't do. I read my Bible, I go to church, I say the right things, I said the right prayer when I was a particular age, I got baptized, I did all these things. But I think, here's, here's a good question you could ask yourself, I think we should all ask, is this question. Can you identify how your heart is oriented on yourself? Do you hate it? 
In other words, are you in touch with your sinfulness? And do you just have this longing for it to go away? I think one of the marks of a believer is this humility, this, Romans 3 talks about me. I fell short of God's glory. I, I was the one who, who decided to bear the image of myself. I was the one who reached for the tree. <laughs> I think one of the marks of a Christian is this willingness to confess and say, yes, I'm in touch. I am not embarrassed to point out the areas. I'm not in this place where I'm trying to avoid or pretend like it's not a reality for me, that my heart is so oriented around myself. And I hate it. I'm more focused on how that's a reality inside of me than I am it being a reality of others. And I'm free to do that because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And God has placed his spirit in me and he's working. And that hatred of that sin inside of you is evidence of the spirit in you working, showing you, here it is here, here it is here. You've been forgiven, you've been saved, but let's root that out. It's life transforming. It's God leading you to joy and to peace. And so I ask again, are you in Christ? Do you see that in yourself? And maybe you're here and watching online right now too that and you're, you don't believe in Jesus. You're not sure what you believe. And I just want you to know that if, if you have not placed your faith in Christ Jesus, in the cross where he has taken your sin, in his righteousness, then you are under the condemnation. You are under the judgment of God. When Romans 8, 1 says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. That now doesn't imply to you because that shift, that pivot is when you trust your life to Jesus. And you say, Jesus, I can't do it. I can't do it. Verse three, God, I need you to do what I cannot do. And place your faith in Jesus. So if that's you this morning, I just encourage you, do it right now. Ask God to reveal himself to you. And, and this could be you. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for years. And you're just now realizing because the spirit by the grace of God is hunting you down and saying, listen, you've never trusted in this before. You've never been willing to confess and admit your sin. Now's the day. Today is the day to do that, to place your trust in in Jesus by simply praying to him, proclaiming your faith to him that your only shot, your only chance, the only thing you have is God's grace to you in and through Jesus. And so here's what I wanna do as we close. I just I wanna give all of us a couple of minutes just to reflect silently I just want you to ask the question, am I in Christ? And if you see the evidences of God's grace in your life, I want you to rejoice in the fact that Christ has saved you. He has done in you what you could not do. 
But if you're wrestling with that question this morning, I want you to ask for God to reveal himself to you this morning. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take a, take a minute. Let's just reflect silently together on that. And then I'm gonna close us in prayer. Father, I pray over every person in this room and tuning in online right now that they would all be in Christ. That you would draw each and every one of them to trust in what Jesus has done to save them. To rejoice in the fact that there is no condemnation for them and there never will be. And to submit and commit their life to walking by the Spirit as you begin the work of reorienting and changing their hearts. God, there's so much good news in verse three. God did what the law couldn't do. God did what we could not do. I just have this feeling that there are people in this room this morning who are trying so hard. They're trying so hard to get everything right. They're trying so hard to look the part. They're trying so hard to figure out where joy and peace are found. God, I pray you draw near to them this morning and help them to let go. That they would fully lean on you for the first time. Trust in Jesus. And trust that you are doing the work that they can't. Humble us, God. Help us to be people who believe so deeply in the gospel that all of our security and all of our identity is found in you and not in ourselves or in the life that we live here. So God, we just wanna celebrate as we leave here. We wanna celebrate the fact that you have set us free from the grip of sin and death. You've set us free from condemnation. You set us free from insecurity. You've set us free from trying to figure it out on our own. We just praise you for that, God. So God, transform us, change us, stir our affections this week for you, the one who may save us.